This is a Romy cast. Welcome to this mini edition of the Walrus Was Paul podcast, hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. We are going to wander along the cast iron shore as we usually do, but this time we're going to take a detour and go to someone's house and, and watch the fantastic Peter Jackson Get Back documentary streaming on Disney+. Plus. Now, I was originally not going to bother with a special episode and my take on the Peter Jackson Get Back documentary, which I thought, like many of you, absolutely fantastic. Uh, can't miss viewing whether you're a, a Beatles fan or even a casual Beatles fan. Uh, no shortage of opinions at all floating around out there in the uh, in the podcast universe, the Twitterverse, everywhere you look. And, and many of them, I must say, they're all talking about the same things and I'll do a little bit of that but then I'll throw my own little theory out there as to what makes the whole thing work so here we go I mean first of all to me this version what jumped out at me is that it's remarkable similarity in its construction to the original let it be movie Now, that's not exactly a huge revelation. Just think about it here for a second. It's the exact same story being told. The Beatles get together with a very loose plan to do an album and a live show or a TV special or a movie. They're not really sure what when they start. They start rehearsals at Twickenham. They have a bust up. They move to Apple Studios. The vibe gets better. They get more into it. And then they get it all together and play on the roof. And that's exactly what happened in the original movie. Only it tried to tell the story in about 80 minutes. Peter Jackson tells the story in about 480 minutes. So the first version isn't wrong at all. It was just incomplete in that it didn't take as much time to tell the story. And that's fair enough because in context, right? I mean, this is 1969-70 when the original was being put together. That was easily 20 years before anyone had even conceived of what we now call reality TV. You know, the the very idea at that time that you know the original project would have been as long as Peter Jackson's version is completely preposterous. There was just no way that would have happened in 1970. It, it just wouldn't have. If, if Even if the Beatles had gone in and said, hey, we want to do an eight-hour TV special, it, it would have been, what? We're going to have footage of you sitting around? No. Because that genre of television had not been invented yet. So, to be fair, 80 minutes, that was what it was going to be. And impossible to tell the story in the kind of detail uh, and as lovingly as Peter Jackson's version manages to tell it. Uh, Very simply, he had way more time. And he had way more time because through the lens of history, looking back 50 years later, we can look at that cache of footage 
as archival significant historically significant to the the music industry and the beatles it, it, it's an artifact so it's worth all of that time it's been gobbled up by people that would not have been the case in 1970 no way a few things worth noting to me, uh, magic moments, uh, I won't dwell on them too long, one a little bit, but because I mean, we've all seen them, we all know what they are, right? Widely covered by others, uh, but I mean, everyone's going to have their own favorite. McCartney giving birth to get back, sitting there, working the tune out on the bass with uh, Harrison and Starr sitting there. I mean, that's amazing. It's you know, You're watching him write a song. Uh, how about the surreptitiously recorded conversation between Lennon and McCartney after George Harrison had left? And I'll talk more about that in a few moments, but man, that was just jaw-dropping. Um, McCartney looking close to tears. It was in the second episode when the camera just kind of hung on him after the you know George had left and they're all sitting around twicking him, what are we going to do? And you can see... It, it's almost dawning on him at that moment that, you know what, this may just be the end of the road for this band that I've loved being a part of and with friends who I love since I was a kid. And uh, you can see his eyes starting to, to glaze over, to tear up. One of my favorites, absolutely, was in episode two when one of the clapper loaders, and uh, just to, for those of you who aren't familiar with the film industry or, or television, uh, that is an entry-level position, right? It's a kid. His job is to get the film to the cameraman when they need new film stock to be loaded and then fill out the details on the clapper board, uh, the sync board, and, and clap it in front of the kid. It's an entry-level position. He's going to get tea. He's going to run errands. He's going to do whatever he is asked to do. He's a kid. I'm guessing he's about 18 years old by the looks of him. And there he is. If you remember the scene, he's sitting beside McCartney at the piano right beside McCartney and McCartney is giving him a bit of an impromptu piano lesson he's talking about you know how how the notes are all there and and he plays a little snippet to demonstrate of Martha my dear and then he's going oh you know look it's all <laughs> as Paul McCartney would the look on that kid's face is just one of my favorite moments of the entire eight hours. The kid's name is Paul Bond. I went back and, and looked it up. Paul Bond. And he's probably pushing 70 years of age now. And it's just so wonderful. I mean, you can see that he's sitting there thinking, I'm sitting beside Paul McCartney and, and he's playing Martha, my dear, for me on the piano while he gives me a piano lesson or some pointers. And you can see that on his face. And I'll bet that he has dined out on that story his whole life. I hope he has. What what an amazing moment that was. I loved it. Uh, another thing I wanted to talk about. I have seen him take some slagging on social media. And I'm talking about Michael Lindsay Hogg. Big shocker there. <clears throat> you know, social media being the cesspit that it often is. But I'll tell you. 
my opinion, you're an idiot if you're one of those slagging them off. And I'll, I'll explain why I think that here as we go along. So full marks I give to the original director, Michael Lindsay Hogg, and the original DOP, director of photography, a guy named Tony Richmond. All of that brilliant footage was supplied by them. All of it. I was really into the fact that in this version, the uh, the Peter Jackson version, Lindsay Hogg becomes a character in the movie. You know, there was an entire narrative of him trying to shoot this intimate biopic that he'd been hired to make of the Beatles making the record with a big payoff for the ending. And them stonewalling him on so many occasions. There, there's one point where one of the Beatles asked him how the documentary is going, and he replies, uh, you know, tongue in cheek, uh, something along the lines of, "Well, if we're doing a documentary on nose picking and ear scratching, we got some great stuff." <laughs> he wasn't getting what he needed, and you know, a lot of that was on the Beatles. They weren't helping. They weren't into it. And he said years later in his autobiography, uh, and I quote him here, With the Beatles, I found an idea was something to be mauled, like a piece of meat thrown into an animal cage. So right there, that tells you his experience. You know, it was tough. Uh, and you could see him bringing ideas and trying to nudge them along and them not really being into it. And that must have been really tough because he wanted to do something big. Now, the big star of the show to me, maybe the biggest star, was the demixing audio technology that was used. Uh, what that did was it took dialogue from sources that were previously unusable. I heard Peter Jackson talking about this, and he said the Beatles quite often, knowing that they were being recorded, uh, when they wanted to have what they regarded as a private-ish conversation, one that they didn't want the microphones listening into, they just sort of lean into one another or lean over, turn up their guitar amps and strum aimlessly on their guitars while they were talking. And in 1969, that rendered the audio unusable. Uh, their words were drowned out by the sounds of the guitars. However, with artificial intelligence-driven demixing technology, what they were able to do was teach the artificial intelligence, you know, this is what Paul's guitar sounds like. This is what George's guitar sounds like. Take that out. And once they did that, they were left with usable audio of the dialogue that was taking place. And that dialogue was the spine, the backbone of this entire movie. So that was the star of the show. Amazing technology. And you know, not to mention, of course, the technology that was used to, to make the original 16 millimeter film look as though it was shot in 4K. I mean, amazing. But the audio demixing, to me, star of the show. Biggest thing. Now, watch the film closely if you go back to rewatch it, because there are countless occasions where what you're hearing is not what is on the film. And, and what I mean by that is that the audio that was being recorded on the actual film that they were shooting 
was not always the audio you were hearing. They had about 60 hours of film footage that they'd accumulated making the Get Back movie, the original one. But they had over 150 hours of recorded audio. So everything was not shot. They did film stock, expensive, and they just they didn't shoot 150 hours of film stock however audio tape much cheaper and they had little portable nagra audio reel-to-reel recorders running almost all the time so much of the audio in the get back film is audio from those nagra reel-to-reel recorders utilized with the demixing technology now this fact is given away right in the opening credits which say, numerous editorial choices had to be made during the production of these films. Scenes that contain audio-only material have been supplemented with representative pictures. The stress is obviously mine. At all times, the filmmakers have attempted to present an accurate portrait of the events depicted and the people involved. So in other words... Just to unpack that, if we have good audio and no video of them talking during a session, we will use film from that session that may not have been taken at the same time the audio was recorded or said conversation was taking place. Brilliant. Uh, And again, to me, the star of the film. If you go back and watch closely, you can see countless occasions where this is happening, where the lips don't quite sync up exactly with what's being said, or they're using a behind-the-back shot of McCartney, for example, while he is talking. You have to watch for it because the film is so well edited but it is there and speaking of audio how about i referred to it earlier the surreptitiously recorded conversation between mccartney and lennon after george harrison had left the band you know when they put the microphone in the flowers on the table now ethics aside (laughs) to me that was absolutely show-stopping to hear this were two guys in an unguarded moment the rawness of it the honesty you know john pointing out that they had created a festering wound and we didn't give him any bandages you wonder how that didn't make it into the original movie but then you think about it and go 50 years ago there's no way that would have flown i think the reaction would have been what You taped us there? We didn't know about that. No, screw that. That's not going in. Forget it. Now, for that matter, there were a few times when I watched and wondered other things other than that conversation. I wondered to myself, how could that have not gone in the original cut of Let It Be? I mean, an obvious example is the McCartney thing where he's essentially giving birth to get back. And he sits there strumming on the bass. Ringo and George listen in. And then you can see them getting enthused and they come in. I mean, it's it's a, a magic moment. How could you have watched that and not put that in the film? I don't I have a theory that I'm going to give you in a second. Uh, there were also a few beautiful tracking shots that, again, using my television eye, I'd look at it and go, well, how did they 
how did they not use that shot? It's a beautiful shot. There was one, I think in the first episode where they're at Twickenham and it goes from right to left and it starts up sort of about shoulder level and the, the band's sitting there playing and it just tracks down, you know, behind, I think it's McCartney and then comes around down and it's, it's just a beautiful looking shot, beautifully composed, beautifully shot. And then there was another one at the Apple Studios where they're playing a song and it's at floor level so and the camera's going along tracking and there's a vase in the way so it kind of distorts the uh, the image going into the lens and it, but it's a beautiful looking shot and I don't know how you could look at those and go nah we're not going to use those but my theory on that is this I do have a theory so as was evident in the film the Beatles never really fully embraced or seemed comfortable with the idea of the documentary or the movie or whatever it was going to be. For that matter, I mean, the entire Let It Be Get Back project, just to put this into context, you have to step back and think about it. The whole thing was largely an unloved child, right? I mean, audio and film sat on the shelves while the Beatles about six, nine weeks later, went on and started work on the next project, and that was the project that was to become Abbey Road. Uh, They rejected a couple of Glyn John's mixes for the album over a number of months, and eventually they handed all the, the audio over to Phil Spector 14 months after it was recorded. 14 months. So Abbey Road had been conceived, recorded, released, before Spectre even got those Let It Be tapes. My point being, and theory, is that Michael Lindsay Hogg, I'll bet, was pretty much left on his own to edit the film and given little feedback or encouragement with minimal Beatles involvement. The band had essentially broken up, and he likely knew that. And they probably did not give a shit at that point about a film they weren't really into in the first place that had been shot almost a year and a half ago. You can imagine. You know, they're getting on with other things. Lindsay Hogg, for his part, uh, was an in-demand director, right? He had other work on the go. He was in London, television movie capital of the world, and had work. Talented young director. And at that time, the Let It Be project was he could see not the film he wanted to make in fact i'll bet he felt as though he'd been sold a bit of a bill of goods he'd done the rock and roll circus with the rolling stones which is pretty cool if you watch it he'd done the hey jude video with the beatles and the revolution video both really cool good-looking projects and he was hired to come in and and do let it be and it did not end up being at all what he'd signed on for you can see that weighing on him in the get back documentary the peter jackson version he must have thought going into it wow This is going to be great. This could be a career-defining moment. It's the Beatles. They're going to do a show. They haven't done a live show since 1966. We'll be in some spectacular venue. It's going to look amazing. Instead, he gets four fairly disinterested guys who can't be arsed in the end to go any further than the top of their office building in central London. 
Think about that. Think about what he thought. Yeah, that's a long way from the roundhouse or an amphitheater in Tunisia, or even for that matter, they could have gone to a club in London. But nope, they couldn't be bothered to do anything more than head up to the roof. Now, 50 years later, we know that was iconic. But the only reason that it's iconic now is because it was their last performance together. At the time... In his mind, I'm sure it was, wow, what a half-assed effort. All they could be bothered doing was to go to the roof. I thought this was going to be big. So I think that Lindsey Hogg's enthusiasm for the project by that time when he's doing the final edit had probably waned somewhat, and he likely just wanted to get it done and get on with other more satisfying projects. And I think that would account for some of the editorial decisions that were made. And we've all been there, if you've ever worked on on a project. There comes a point where I just want to get it done. Nobody cares. Get it done. My final observation on the whole thing is this. I think that part of the appeal of the Beatles and what makes this documentary as great and as accessible to obsessive Beatles fans and casual fans alike is that in many ways, we all feel as though we've been hanging out with the Beatles (laughs) for the last 30 or 40 years or longer. Uh, now, Now, I'm well aware that's a load of bullshit, right? I mean, we don't know them. We've never met them. We don't know them the way true friends and loved ones do. What we know are, in many cases, very carefully curated images of each of their personas. But that said, there is not another band, and in fact, not many other individuals during our lifetime, whose lives have been more copiously, meticulously documented for as long a period of time as the two surviving Beatles and the two no longer with us Beatles. Think about it. The number of books, documentaries, print, audio, video interviews, podcasts, first or second hand accounts of their actions. I mean, the mind boggles. We feel like we know them. So in that sense, it feels perfectly natural to essentially be a fly on the wall sitting in those rooms with them, these guys we know, while they interact with one another in front of us. We've all been in that room before. By listening to them, watching them, and reading all of the books and interviews, that's a huge reason why it all works, I think. And I also think on a more macro level, that it's it's really all just one big play on interpersonal relationships with those you love and are close to and maybe those you work with. If you have a spouse, a brother, a sister, if you've been a, a teammate or collaborate closely with work colleagues, you've been there. That delicate give and take that making sure everyone feels included or what it's like to be excluded and not on the same wavelength as everybody else. Elation and hubris and sadness and regret. That is all of us. And that is what, to me, gives this documentary the punch that it has. It's for people that we all feel we kind of know in situations that we most definitely know. 
and have lived to some degree. It's about relationships. And with relationships, sometimes you want to get back and sometimes you just need to let it be. Well, that's it for now. That's my two cents. As always, happy to hear your thoughts on my thoughts. And you can do that in all of the usual places, Twitter or Insta, at RomanuckPaul is the handle, or on Facebook, the Walrus Was Paul podcast page. Take a look for that, or right on the episode page where there's a place for you to leave a comment on that specific episode, and you can find that at romicast.com. Thanks for your time, as always. Thanks for your support, as always. And I'll talk to you next time. I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we pass the audition.